Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, October 31st, 2021. It focuses on Jesus' goodness and fearlessness as revealed in Mark chapter 3. The message to all who will listen is, God who is good does good in and through his people and gives those who seek him his fearlessness. Now here is Pastor Mike Neifert. I pray, God, that you would do your work in us. Thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. And God, I pray that your word would accomplish in us everything that you desire today. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you don't know this about me, but I'm kind of a rules guy. I mean, if there are guidelines, I think I and everyone else should abide by them. If there's a blinking red light, it means stop. If you're told to take only two pieces of pizza at a party, you should restrain yourself and take only two pieces. If you're in a checkout line at Dylan's that says 15 items or less. Okay, maybe I'm not that bad. But because I'm kind of into rules and I like to understand them and know them so that I can follow them, I have read every page of the NFHS track and field and cross country rule book. I know how big the logos on uniforms can be. I know how high above the cross country course a branch must be. It's eight feet. I know that the first hundred meters of a cross country course must be straight and that the finish line of said course must be 15 feet wide at the mouth of a roped-off funnel leading to a chute that's at least 100 feet long. It annoys me when that finish at the mouth of the chute doesn't happen because kids get confused if there's ropes before the finish line, and they stop sometimes. Follow the rules. (laughs) Okay. Knowing that I'd know the answer, there were a couple of times last year when I was coaching track and the head coach would actually call me during a meet and ask me a question. The first time arose as one of our runners was running the 1600 meter, he called me and he says, hey, how many steps can a runner take outside the inside line in a row? I said, one. You're allowed one incidental step off the track, basically. If you lose your balance, you can step off the track. That guy that was in second place who ended up winning was taking every single left step off the track. There was no official there, so he didn't get disqualified, but he was breaking the rules. A few weeks later, we were at another meet, and our head coach pulled a couple of runners out of the 400-meter race to save them for a relay that he wanted them to be fresh for. And an official at the meet subsequently informed our coach that scratching an athlete from an event removed them from the rest of the meet. He called me again, because I'm the rules guy, remember? I listened to our very frustrated head coach keep insisting that there was nothing in the rule book about such a consequence. The guy kept telling us, insisting that that rule was there. Yeah, there was no such rule. I was sure of it. Thankfully, our meat organizer stepped in and said they can run. A few days later, I discovered that there is actually another rule book. <laughs> My head coach handed it to me. I read it cover to cover. When I got to rule three, I discovered the official that we'd argued with had tried to invoke a rule which only applies 
only applies to Keisha-run regional meats. Says plain as day, regional. I have tucked that bit of information away for a later date. It pains me to say this, but you know what? In my worst moments, I'm probably as much like the Pharisees as anybody. I have on more than one occasion been kind of judgy when others break certain rules, but at the same time waved a dismissive hand at my own wrongdoing. It's only by God's grace and his patient correction that I have come to judge less and give grace more. God help me, I am a recovering Pharisee. We're going to see Jesus and the Pharisees butt heads over a kind of crazy issue as we look at Mark chapter 3 today. Before we read Mark's account of this event, let me remind you of a few things that we talked about as we were making our way through Matthew. The Pharisees were, as a group, trying hard to get everyone to behave themselves in order to remain on God's good graces. That's why they made the rules. They thought, we've got to do this right so we don't get sent off into exile again. So they put together this book called the Talmud, and they had all these extra little rules to keep us from getting too close to the cliffs of insanity, to the edge of sin. And so they had all these extra rules that weren't from God. They were just man-made stuff to try to keep us as far from the edge so that we didn't accidentally offend God and he would bring his wrath upon us, us being Israel. Obey to be on the safe side seems to have been the Pharisees' motto. To guard against these accidental forays into wickedness, they wrote much, much more restrictive guidelines. All their bonus laws really had to do with fear. Imagining God's sword hanging over Israel at all times, that he was ready to strike them. So they strictly enforced their laws upon the people. We didn't talk about it last week, but I'll mention it now. At the end of Mark chapter 2, this group of men chewed Jesus' disciples out for a seemingly minor thing. The story begins at verse 23. I encourage you to follow along. We're just going to read verses 23 through 28. So here's what it says. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28 says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, that is to Jesus, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Did you catch it? Jesus seems to be saying that God's judgment isn't as harsh and as swift as the Pharisees think it is. Jesus tells of God's grace toward hungry people. He reminds the Pharisees of David, the king that everybody loved and adored, that there was this little indiscretion concerning the special priest's only bread that he and his companions ate, and God did not judge them. 
Jesus seems to be saying, surely a God who can overlook this major offense can let a few men off the hook for grabbing a snack while walking through a field. Even in the Old Testament, there are hints at this. Though God sometimes judged his people or their enemies, he often showed restraint. In Exodus 34, Moses has a close encounter with God, and God passes by and speaks his name out loud. I want you to listen to what the Spirit inspired the man to write down concerning this incident in verses 5 through 9 of Exodus 34. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. We talked two weeks ago about God's compassion. And last week we talked about God's forgiving nature. Here we hear Jesus speaking to both and adding more into the mix. Yes, God punishes sin, but he does so in love and with grace. Yes, his anger can be aroused, but did you catch his anger is slow. He's slow to anger. He does not immediately abandon his people when they sin. He offers grace and he is faithful. God is good, isn't he? I think we'll see his goodness shine as we read through Mark chapter 3 and talk about it this morning. I've invited Scott to come and to read the chapter for us. I want you to listen to what God might be saying to you as the words come into your ears. Let the Spirit do his work in your heart because you got to remember that anytime you're hearing God's word, you're hearing the Spirit behind it, and he may have a message for you that's different than what I talk about. So pay attention and hear what God has to say. Another time he went into the synagogue, and another man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! 
but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designated them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonargus, which means son of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can, then he can rob the, his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an, inter of an eternal sin. Then he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they, went, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does, not, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Did you notice it? The Pharisees who earlier had reprimanded the twelve for picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath did not learn a thing from what Jesus said to them. Jesus told them that the Sabbath was given for their good and for the good of others. He asserted his authority over the Sabbath, naming himself, calling himself Lord of the Sabbath. And now here in Mark 3, we find them challenging the Lord of the Sabbath to a second round of the fight about this law's application. The Pharisees say nothing to Jesus as he walks into worship at the synagogue on this particular Sabbath. They can't wait, though, to see what Jesus is going to do with this man who has a deformity who's come to meeting that day. Will he heal the guy or turn away? They're looking for a way to accuse him, so they hope that he does something wrong, that there's some slip-up. Pay attention here, though. The men eyeing Jesus judgmentally are more concerned about the law as they understand it than they are about the very real needs of a human being. They imagine God shares their priorities, that he values this no-work commandment over restoring a man who has been made in his image. How this makes sense to them, I have puzzled over for years. I don't know. 
The reason God gave the command to observe the Sabbath, to rest on the Sabbath, was for our good. We need rest. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. We need time to reflect on God's goodness and on his provision, on who he is. Observing the Sabbath shouts loudly and clearly, I trust God because he's good. I trust God for all I need. He'll come through. I can take a break and my world won't fall apart. Do you believe God is good? Are you trusting him? Are you resting in him? Jesus, with a simple question, makes it plain. The command in question on this day is not what the Pharisees imagine it to be. He asks, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? The answer is blatantly obvious given the options that he presents. Is doing evil ever God's plan? But it's always lawful to do good. You can do good on the Sabbath even if it involves a bit of work. Killing is always out, right? Saving lives, always in. Doing good and saving lives are the right choice in every circumstance. They are at any time, even on the Sabbath, lawful. Call these things work if you like. They're still lawful. They're still legal. Doing good is lawful every single day of every single week of every single year of your whole life. Ask yourself this. Does God ever take a day off from doing good? No. He's always at work, bringing about good every second of every hour of every day. He is doing good at all times. It makes sense that sometimes the good he's going to do might be done by one of his children. If believers have the Spirit of God in them, the Spirit of God is good, it makes sense that God's going to do some of the good through us. And if he's always at work doing good, then we can trust that it doesn't matter what day of the week it is. If goodness is part of who God is, if he cannot be anything but good, then those who are his will reflect his goodness and show his goodness and do his good work whenever and wherever he's doing it. I love what Paul wrote to the church concerning doing good. His words are in Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, and they encourage me and they challenge me. So listen carefully as I read. These words are for you. They're for me. Here's what Paul writes, Galatians 6, 9 to 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So here's a safe enough guideline for life. Whenever good can be done, good should be done. If you have the opportunity to do good, do it. There's no law and can be no law which bans good. Jesus shows God's goodness to the man with a shriveled hand by healing him. He shows us also that God's goodness and, by extension, our goodness doesn't take days off. As an aside, it's interesting that when Jesus withdrew from the area, knowing the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting to kill him, he kept on doing good. 
Look at verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever evil or impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Wherever Jesus goes, he's doing good. He's healing diseases, kicking out evil spirits, showing the world who God is and what he's like. It's no wonder folks were drawn to him to the point that he had to get in a boat to keep from being trampled. Aren't people still drawn to Jesus when they see his goodness on display? Jesus said it would be this way. In his Sermon on the Mount, he spoke clearly enough to his disciples. The words I'm thinking of are found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Hear Jesus speaking to your heart. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. God's goodness is seen in you. And it's intended to point people to him. So keep doing good every single day of the week, every day of the year, every day of your life. Bring glory to the one who loved you enough to send Jesus to save you. I wonder if Jesus displays another characteristic of God in this tale of goodness judged wrongly. The first time I read this story this week, I was taken by how Jesus faced his enemies. Jesus knows powerful men are watching him closely. He knows that they would love nothing more than for him to trip up, that they would have something to use to accuse him of doing wrong. He even knows that they're soon going to be plotting to kill him. Still, Jesus does what is right and good. He acts and speaks fearlessly. I suppose Jesus' fearlessness jumped off the page at me because for much of my life, I was not very fearless. I was fearful, skittish, people-pleasing. If I knew, like Jesus did, folks were trying to trap me in what I said or did, I would be overly cautious. I might even have done or said the wrong thing just to keep things calm. Not Jesus. He boldly brings the man with the shriveled hand up front and courageously asks the right question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? He does what's right, knowing the good that he does will be interpreted as evil in the sight of those who seem to have the most power in the room. You notice I said seem to have the most power. He, of course, is the son of God, and as such has far more power than these men imagine. You and I serve the one true God. He has power beyond our imagination, and he is fearless. Who is there for him to fear? He cannot be defeated or deterred or destroyed. We will not find him too weak to help us. Listen to what Paul said to the young church in the city of Rome. I'm reading Romans 8, 
31 to 39. This may be familiar to some of you. It's a famous passage. I love reading it because it keeps reminding me who God is and the good he's done for us. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has over the past few years increased my courage. I feel much less fear than I used to. I give him all the credit for that change because it's his fearlessness in me, not my own. It's him making me fearless, and I'm enjoying the peace that he gives. God is good. He does the good and right thing all the time. God is fearless. He does the good and right thing no matter who opposes him. I'm thankful that God's both, aren't you? I'm thankful that he brings good into my life and into the lives of others through me. I'm thankful that he's made me less fearful, teasing fearlessness out of me through his spirit's work, and I'm thankful that he's doing the same in you. It's how the spirit works. I hope you're thankful today as well. I urge you to express your thankfulness to God for his goodness to you. I urge you to ask him to free you from slavery to sin and to fear to worship God and honor him. I want to invite you to do that now, just to give thanks and to worship God as we spend just a moment or two in silence. Seek God who is good and God who is fearless and ask him to help you to live a good and fearless life. Respond to him in prayer today. God, we're thankful that you don't take days off. That you're always at work and that you're always doing what's good and right for us. God, help us to be good. Help us to do good things to bless others. And God, those who oppose you are sometimes fearsome, But we thank you that you give us courage to do the right thing anyway and to say the right thing and to stand up against the evil that we see in ourselves and in others. I pray, God, that you'll help us to live fearless lives doing the good that you give us to do this week. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let me read one more passage from God's word. These words are given to the church by John in the first letter that he wrote to believers. So in 1 John 4.4, we have these words of encouragement that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to us through John. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We talked in Sunday school this morning about the temptation of the evil one and how he tricked and deceived Adam and Eve into sin. God has come that we might have life and that we might be restored to him, that we no longer have to do the wrong thing. And we recognize today that the one who's in us, the Spirit of God, is greater than the one who's without, the one who is tempting us. And so we can go out fearlessly into the world and do good, fearing no one or no being. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. He will see us through and save us. In the end, to him be all glory. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.